Whole lot of talk. The interviews that rock. Brought to you by Rock Antenna, Germany's number one rock radio station. Hello, Ian Hill of Judas Priest. Well, thank you so much for taking time. It's a real, real pleasure. Um, should we start right at the beginning? Um, how did you start with music or with uh, which music did you grow up when you were younger? It was you know, pop music. I mean, the, the, we didn't have the media back then that we have today. We had the radio and that was about it. And occasionally the TV. And of course, what you played yourself uh, on the record player and that, that was it. My dad was a jazz musician. And he played double bass in, in jazz bands and dance bands. My dad started to teach me the rudiments of the double bass. You're the bass player of uh, Judas Priest. Um, how did you get into playing the bass? No, I, I wasn't really that interested at all, to be honest. I, I mean, I do come from a musical family and my cousins all play instruments and what have you. And I was quite late to the game, really. Like I said, by the time I decided to give it a go, that died. So um, I gave up the double bass, picked up a bass guitar and found out it was ultimately easier to play and ultimately more portable. <laughs> And just went from there. And by that time, I was going into my own kind of music, you know, the, the old bluesers, John Mayall, Cream, Free, Fleetwood Mac, of course, Taste, all, all the old blues rock bands. And started just picking out bass lines from there. And how did you start out with the band then? It was a laugh at the time, basically. Obviously, we were all just learning our trade. We were lucky enough to be pretty much at the same stage, three of us. There was Kent Downey, myself, okay. and the drummer called John Ellis. We were doing exactly the same thing, you know, I picking see. up sort of the guitar parts, bass lines and, and drum patterns from the various groups that we were into at the time, you know. And then Alan Atkins walked past our rehearsal room one day, who was a member of the original Judas Priest, you know, from, from the earlier 60s. They just bit up, you know, when he came in and asked if uh, we wanted uh, a vocalist. And as uh, soon as none of us could hold a tune, really. And we went from there, you know. Back in the early days, um, how was the music scene back then? I mean, anything went. There's no distinct lines, you know, that there are today. All you've got to do is watch early versions of I don't know, Top of the Pops or something like that. <laughs> it was totally eclectic. Okay. You know, you'd have all the, all the pop acts of the time, the Lulus and, and the Hollies and things like that. But then you'd have uh, Cream and Jimi Hendrix on there as well, you know. And that continued right up until um, the 70s, really. I mean, we, we, we did Top of the Pops a couple of times. And also the shows, and we were on there with Donnie Marie Osmond and people like that, you know, the pop acts of the time. So there, there was no, none of this, uh, oh, no, we can't have them on the heavy metal, we can't have them on, the, you know, the prog rock or heavy rock or whatever, everything like that. If people were popular, they had a shout, you know. The record said Wings of Destiny was your second record. You released it in 1976. Uh, how was it to make this album or how did it come about? Yeah, it was the first one that was well produced. <laughs> the first album, there's some decent material on, on Rock and Roller, you know. We were very limited on time. John Bain, the, the producer, got a lot of flack for that, but I think he did about as good a job as he could do with the time he had. I mean, uh, we were with a very, very small label with very limited funds, and uh, we were having to work throughout the night, you know, because we couldn't afford day rates at the studio. With Sad Wings, we, we had um, a bit more scope with that, you know. We were able to take a bit more time over it and, and polish it a bit more. And it was it's an extremely important album. Some of the songs on there we, we, we're still playing today, you know, The Victim of Changes and what have you. I mean, heavy metal didn't really come into being until the later 70s when it was defined. We were doing what we enjoyed. In fact, we We've always done that, you know, we've been very, very lucky, really, in that respect. We haven't thought, oh, I think we better do this, that and the other, or we can't do that or whatever. We've, we've done whatever we felt and got on with it. And we've been lucky that our fans have liked it too. 
There's five people in the band. We'd all got diverse influences, if you know what I mean. They brought little bits of those influences into Judas Priest, which probably made us a little bit more unique. And right from the very start, you know, people were trying to put a label on us, oh, they sound like this or they sound like that. And they really couldn't do it, you know. That's why, because we were bringing different parts and different acts in and mixing it all up in a different concoction. <laughs> okay, and what do you think about punk in general, about the genre punk? Punk started off really wrong, almost amateurish, you know. A lot of the larger bands had, had sort of stopped stopped performing or sort of stopped touring, I should say, Zeppelins and Sabbath had a big hiatus there for a while and a lot of other bands, Creep was split up, things like that. And there was a big hole left there and Punk sort of sprang out of that. And I think what happened to Punk, I think he just got more refined. It's funny because uh, when Punk came along, people were trying to write off heavy metal even then, you know, it hadn't even been invented yet. And they were trying to write the more traditional bands off. With Judas Priest, you're kind of like a pioneer um, band of heavy metal. Um, back in the days, how was the new wave of British heavy metal? We came up somewhere in between there, in between the, the, the original lot and, and the new wave. <laughs> okay. But it was great news, you know. It was, it, was, it was a sign that the music, the style of music was getting so popular that other people were joining in. Mm -hmm. And it was a great time, you know. Mm -hmm. We did work in, in the earlier days with Maiden, Motorhead, Def Leppard, you know. We worked with all of them on the road. In, in one way or another. And then in 1978, you released the song Take On The World. Um, it's from your record Killing Machine. Um, the song is very special. It's uh, been written for commercial radio. Take On The World, yeah. We, we did try and mix up with, with each album. We'd, we'd try and have some kind of ballad or slower songs in there. <laughs> and a commercial song as well, you know. Why? Because we, we thought that really it's it's important to try and get the more commercial side of it on the radio to try and, you know, drum up uh, support, if you know what I mean, you know, get into the masses, if you know what I mean. Take on the World is one of those. And you also played at the Monsters of Rock Festival, right? <laughs> How was that? God, it was a blazing hot day, remember that. And I, I was wearing a chainmail suit. <laughs> <laughs> I looked like I'd been griddled afterwards. It was a bit shambolic. You know, everybody was learning the trade, if you know what I mean. But it was just great fun. And that's where you do get a lot of camaraderie because there's a lot of people hanging around. They're great fun, you know. You do get to meet people. There's no sense of it being groundbreaking or anything like that. It was a huge gig and we, we, we loved doing things like that. I mean, you're getting your stuff, your material across to, to people that have come to see other bands, you know, that wouldn't necessarily come to your show and vice versa. You know? And it was just great news for all the artists involved because of that. Even today, they're great fun, you know. And also, I read that you um, recorded the record British Steel in John Lennon's old house. Um, oh my God, like I cannot imagine how that must be like. How was it for you? Yeah, it was Ringo's house. It used to belong to John Lennon. Oh, okay. He, I think he just recently <laughs> married Barbara Bach. He'd moved off to Switzerland mm -hmm. and uh, he got this great big rambling house in, in Ascot. It was a very decent recording studio and decided to rent it out. Incredible place to record. Beautiful Georgian mansion, you know. Somebody opened a cupboard once and there's a load of Ringo's gold records. I mean, dozens of them. You know what I mean? Because being the Beatles, they'll get records for, from all over the world. You know, you haven't got a room big enough to hang them up. One of the most uncanny things was when John Lennon was tragically shot. People started to play the imagined video. Lennon sitting on a piano in a white room and, and Yoko's going around opening these curtains. We're sitting in that room watching it on TV. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Brilliant place, though. Absolutely marvelous place to record. And it, it's a great tragedy that it didn't carry on as a studio, you know. 
How was it in general, like, uh, to record uh, British Steel? It was a large house, you know, so we, we could experiment with, with different locations within the house. I mean, I think we recorded some of the guitar in one of the toilets, you know, because we got a great, a great bit of a sort of ambience in there. It was innovative and, um, you know, the production, the noises that you get from all these beats, it was all experimental and we did a load of that you know breaking milk bottles and golf clubs in front of the mic and stuff like that it was all great fun of course with Tittenhurst Park you, you had all the room to do it and, and when you got fed up you could just go and have a walk around the Arboretum you know it was great what was uh, what was so special about recording that one you get a feeling that you're onto something good you know because the material's there and you're listening to it going down and it's sounding good yeah. some of the all-time bands <laughs> mm-hmm. classics were on that album you know living after midnight break the law metal gods mm-hmm. all came from that album you know yeah we had a feeling that we were onto a good thing We're pretty humble guys at the end of the day, and you never think, oh, it's going to be a groundbreaking album. We're going to rule the world with this one, you know. But you do know when you're onto a good thing or not, and, and that definitely was. And you also had quite a success, a commercial success, with Living After Midnight. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's wonderful, you know. If you feel like you're doing something right, some people appreciating what you're doing. We never intended to, oh, yeah, this is going to be great. We'll be on top of the pops with this one. We just did what we felt. People picked up on it and started to get the word around, you know. Like I said before, you're really like a pioneer band for heavy metal. And um, also because of the record British Steel, um, what do you think about the impact that it really had? Presentation and what we wore and things like that. Obviously, that, that came a very close second. With British Steel, everything sort of clicked there, you know, the, the, the musical direction, the image of the band, the, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. It, it all sort of gelled with that record. You know, there's a direct line from from that record right the way through really to Turbo, where things change a little bit with the guitar synthesizers, you know. It was a defining mark for Judas Priest, defining album. You also got a motorbike on stage. Yeah, a lot of these things. <laughs> That's very special. Why? <laughs> Who had the idea for that? Sort of mentioned in jest to start with, you know. Why don't you drive a motorcycle? Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> Next thing you know, somebody's called a Polly Davidson. And, well, they wouldn't give us one, but they sold us one for a dollar. Apparently, they, they couldn't give one away, but they, they, they sold it to us for a dollar. Sort of publicity for them as well, you know. Uh, Up-and-coming British metal bands drive one of their motorcycles on stage. <laughs> I mean, but you're not just successful in Great Britain. You're like all over the world. How was it for you to like break into America as well? It was one of them, yeah. I mean, America is, is, a, is a large free country. If you made America, it made life a little bit easier, if you know what I mean. The budget gets larger and you can you can put on bigger shows. You can spend more time on the island, spend more songwriting. It helps all around, really. The AM radio in America picked up on that. Uh, you've got another thing coming. And played the hell out of it, you know. And I can remember that we, we were going on tour and we were booked to play in on four or five thousand seaters. And these were being cancelled and, and they were sticking us in larger places, you know, 10,000 seaters and things like that. So uh, we knew we'd pretty much cracked it then. When you started with Judas Priest, you really paved the way for heavy metal. Um, but nowadays, there are like so many more metal bands. What do you think about fitting in with those other bands? I think we had a rawer edge than, than the American outfits, and we didn't look as pretty as them either. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it was all heavy metal at the end of the day. It was heading upwards, and people were playing it and joining in. It was a great time. It was a great time for metal. <laughs> yeah, it was. And there was also um, the 1983, there was the US Festival. How was that for you? Just enormous. I mean, you, you couldn't drive in and out of the festival site because the, the roads were just blocked with parked cars. You couldn't do that. So the promoters had actually rented out the, the sort of five miles away. There's a holiday inn. 
and he'd actually block rented the whole hotel and that was the dressing rooms you got changed there you got into a helicopter flew out to the show did your show and then flew back it wasn't quite dark when we were playing and we, we'd, we'd flown over the countryside over, over these fields and we came across this little hill and on the other side there was just a huge field of different colour and that was it. That was the festival site, you know. People, as far as you could see, there's some 300-odd thousand people there, you know, at the end of the day. Oh, I can imagine. I wish I could have been there. <laughs> Incredible show. So we are talking about the 80s at the moment. Um, and in 1982, you released a song that is called You've Got Another Thing Coming. And I think it's still timeless, right? It's an immense feeling. I mean, you're putting your set list together. That gets obviously harder and harder with each album you do. You've got to drop somebody's favorite to put the new songs in, you know. But there's some you, you can't drop, and that's obviously one of them. But you put a set list together, it's, oh, we've played that to, to death sort of thing, you know. But as soon as you, you fire it up, the first couple of chords, people know what it is, and you see the reaction, it makes it all worthwhile. It's a tremendous feeling. The great part about these songs is they still sound fresh as well. I mean, some of them are 40 years old. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we've been able to endure all of these years, you know. Yeah, we still love your old songs. And also the new ones, of course. Um, talking about your old songs, um, you release a new box set. How does that come about? What's in it? Can you tell us anything about that? We practically threw everything at it. Everything we could find is on there. Years ago, we, we thought we'd exhausted all what was in the archives and what have you. And then uh, somebody comes along and says, oh, we've got all these live tapes from so-and-so, so-and-so, you know, oh, well. So we found all this new live material, you know, and um, we've included all of that in there. At this moment in time, that is everything. But it doesn't mean to say that something else is not going to come out of the woodwork somewhere. It was great fun putting all that together, which, well, it's easy to put together, you know, because you just wanted to put everything on there everything that we could find. And that's what we've done. You know, it's an incredible set of music. It sounds really great. Well, thank you so much. Um, Ian, we talked a lot about like the early years and um, all the different stages with Judas Priest and everything, your music. Um, so you can look back on a, on a long and very important career in music. Um, do you remember what's your proudest moment? It's the first album, seen it on the shelf, as poorly produced as it was. We went down to your local record store, uh, Turner's Music in Paradise Street in West Bromwich, <laughs> where you bought, you know, where all the locals bought their, their records. And you, you go in there, and there it is. It's on a shelf. You've got Cream over there. You've got Hendrix there. You've got the Beatles and the Stones. And yours is there in amongst that. And you think, oh, geez, at least if it all ends tomorrow, at least we've got this, you know, that'll last forever. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's true. It really lasts forever. Well, thank you so much. Well, Judas Priest exists now for 50 years, for over 50 years. What do you think? What is your recipe? How did you stay together for that long, for such a long time? The humility does come into it, really. I mean, if, if anybody going to start thinking that they're, you know, the, the next Messiah, well, it ain't going to last very long. <laughs> It's a sense of humor and a, and a bit of tolerance from everybody. That's about the key. I mean, we are who we are. We're just a bunch of people who genuinely get along. If you put up with a few little personality quirks or whatever, you, you know, you, there's no reason to, to change it. Oh, well said. Well, thank you so much, Ian Hill of Judas Priest. It's been a real, real pleasure. Um, take care and all the best for the future and really hope to see you guys soon. Thank you. Bye. Whole lot of talk. The interviews that rock. Subscribe to our channel for more rocking podcasts.